Good evening, and welcome to Humanities 101. I am Lisa Prinz. And I'm Kendra Cowley, and we are the coordinators of Humanities 101, or HUM. Along with our amazing volunteers and intern Morningstar Willier, we've been putting together weekly HUM classes here on CJSR. HUM is a free university course that usually meets in person at the U of A and off campus. But due to COVID-19, we are now meeting here on air. You can always reach out for more information at 587-709-5472 or HUM101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check out our website at hum101onair.ca where you can find past episodes and materials that are mentioned in interviews and also readings to keep us thinking. Even though we could have done an entire season on music, something both Lisa and I are really passionate about, Last week, we wrapped up the three-part class on music and storytelling by sharing a live off-the-stage interview and performance with a woman-led Indigenous drum group called Chubby Cree. We met and interviewed Carol Powder, her daughter Robin Powder, and her grandson Noah Green, all members of Chubby Cree. It was great to listen and learn from their stories, knowledge, and music. Thank you, Chubby Cree, for speaking with us about the importance of women playing the drum, the power of the drum to heal the earth, and what it means to make music as a family. If you missed this class, it's posted online at hum101onair.ca. You can also find Chubby Cree on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Last week, we also got to catch up with Jason Boris, who has been helping Hum with sound over the past months. He is also the amazing human who made recording Chubby Cree possible. And he is half of AG47, who has lent us the theme music for the class. Besides all that Jason has done for Hum, he is also a very accomplished musician who plays and experiments with sound using a modular synthesizer. Like Chubby Cree, Jason hopes his music is used to heal. This week, we have a bit of a combo class. We start off thinking about autobiography with Julie Rack, a U of A instructor, and then meet two local writers, Darren Hagen, who chronicles Edmonton's queer history through drag performance, playwriting, and queer history tours, and Nisha Patel, Edmonton's poet laureate. We begin with Julie, who teaches classes in autobiography. She shares with us some of the ways we can tell our own stories and reminds us that we are always already sharing our stories in the everyday, in doctor's reports, interviews, and even on Facebook. Throughout this term, it has been our hope that listeners might be able to connect with some of the stories that have been shared by our guests. That moments of comedic reprieve, shared experiences, and collective dreams for the future might remind us that across the great void, there are others who see us, share our fears and desires, and who have also fought hard to have their voices heard. It is our hope that hearing these stories might move others to share their own stories in whatever form those take. So today we talked to Julie about autobiography, a self-written account of one's own life, wherein the writer has full control over the narrative of their own story. Please introduce yourselves to us. Absolutely, my name is Julie Rack and I'm a professor in the Department of English and Film Studies and I love teaching, writing and thinking about nonfiction. You speak in your classes, you run classes on autobiography and life writing. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what life writing is and why yeah. is it an important thing to think about? 
Yes, I'd be happy to. Okay, so when you go into a store and you look at books and you look at nonfiction, you're not going to see that term life writing. It actually refers to the study of these things I'm going to talk about. Literally, life writing, if you put it into Latin, means biographe, life writing, okay? And it really expresses all the kinds of personal nonfiction that is written. So, or it doesn't express it, but it describes that. So, Life writing can be autobiography, so your life story that you wrote yourself. It can be biography, so that's the story of someone else. It can be diaries, which are written by someone and not for an audience, except for themselves, presumably. Um, and it can even refer to letters and personal stories that are shared in letters. And nowadays, it also refers to personal life stories that are shared online and on social media. So life writing does all of that. And those of us who study it, that's what we say we do so that we don't leave anything out. So yeah. lots of us are everyday folks, uh, for lack of a better term. <laughs> so I'm wondering about the things that get overlooked in our lives that are life writing and ways that we could tell our stories. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things about writing your life story. I don't know if anyone's ever said to you, do you need to write your life story? But they probably have and you haven't even realized it. For instance, um, if you if you go to the doctor's office, the doctor will ask you for your medical history. That's in a way, it's your life story, isn't it? That's an ordinary everyday way that we share the details of our lives or sometimes we're asked to um, if something happens and, you know, and we end up where somebody has to interview us. Sometimes that's another place for that, where you have your life story shared, but you're quite right. Ordinary things, things that are just part of our regular lives often we don't think that they can be part of a real autobiography because we have all these assumptions about who writes those things and who reads them or watches them or consumes them. And we often assume that it's celebrities, right? Or other kinds of famous people who have life stories and the rest of us don't have anything worth telling. And I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Everybody has a story. Everyone. Everyone has something interesting that's happened to them that they can share. Everyone, if they do share, can do that for all kinds of reasons, including helping other people, including helping yourself. When you think about how life writing works, we often think that when you start your life story, you start when you're born, right? Like you start, you know, you start with your birth and who your parents were, and you might be saying a few things about your parents. But just think about that for a sec, okay? When you're born, you don't actually know anything, right? <laughs> you're a baby, you know? You, you, you see these people who are with you and you think, okay, people there, right? It takes a while for you to figure out what's going on. So if you think about it that way, you have to invent your life story right from the beginning. You have to actually go on other people's ideas, other people's documents that say when you were born, who your parents were, and how, and how you started to grow up before you even get to where you remember. So you are already curating your own life. You're already making up a story about your life and making it work, right? And you're figuring out what to put in and what to take out. And that's interesting. There's artistry in that. And there's lots of people out there who write stories like that that people read. So 
Absolutely. Ordinary, the ordinary every day is part of life stories. And it's because you can curate it, it can become really compelling. Yesterday, when we were talking, <laughs> um, you talked about how when you write your stories, what can happen for you, um, many things can happen for you, but you really talked about how you go from where you've been to where you are and where you can imagine yourself. And I'm wondering if you could speak to kind of the, the process that happens when you begin to write your life story. Yeah, a lot of people have talked about this and had a lot to say about it. Um, a really good example right now is um, Jesse Thistle and his best-selling memoir, From the Ashes, which is about how he came into understanding his identity as a Métis person, but also that he lived on the street and how he came off the street and started to live a different kind of life. And he's actually talked a lot about what it's like to write that kind of book. And he said writing about his past caused him to understand that he had a future. So in a sense, what he was doing when he was putting his story together was realizing that he had worth and that the people in his life had worth. He even went and met his aunties and met these people. He'd been adopted out and he lost his family and he, and he, and he, and he came back together with them and learned how to be with them as part of him writing his story. And so he's somebody who really was able to imagine himself going forward as Jesse Thistle, you know, awesome Métis man, when he didn't have a past where he felt like he had any worth. So, so him writing his story gave him a future, right? So just looking back made him go forward. That's what he talks about. So that's a really good example of what can happen when you write your own life story. You can kind of evaluate it and, and realize that you're worth, you're worth that story, not only to you, but to other people who might learn from it too. So there's all kinds of reasons why writing about your past can also help you write the next chapter of your life. When we think about whose stories we consume as a culture, yeah. Often focus on the celebrity, and Jesse Thistle's not a celebrity. No. So I'm wondering if you could give us another example of um, either someone who is the ordinary that has um, had impact that way, and also why is that important that we listen to those different voices and we have those different voices included um, sure. on our shelves and in our libraries. Absolutely. Okay, so there's lots of examples of ordinary writing, but one of the contexts for this is really in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, something happened in the United States, which is now called the memoir boom. And that was an increase in the publication of stories by ordinary people, people who weren't known before their stories were known. In the United States, um, a writer, a, a young woman whose name is Susanna Kaysen, who then became a writer, wrote her story called Girl Interrupted. And Girl Interrupted was about how she got put against her will into a mental institution when she was not mentally impaired in any way. And it's about her efforts to get out. And she repeats inside of her story she actually copies in um, the contents of her file that was kept on her in the hospital when she got access to it. And then she basically writes the story that says, this is how I ended up with this file and, and pushes back against what the doctors say about her. 
So that's what that really caused a lot of other people to realize that they could write about their lives as well. After the memoir boom started, you got all these different kinds of stories. So on piggybacking on that, um, we're saying people who've had extraordinary, like you're talking about the gal who spent time in um, uh, institution. And I think though that there are many people who've spent time in institution, her being put there outside of her will might be somewhat exceptional, but this idea that there are people that share that story. So as um, when we keep it in ourselves and we don't share it, it might seem that it is just our story. Um, Yesterday, you talked about how there's an ecosystem of stories and how to keep that in balance. And I wonder if part of that is making sure that we're sharing these diverse stories that aren't as unique as maybe we think they are to help us kind of better understand what else is happening. Yes, it does. So like you can see human history or even just history generally in this kind of top down, like I'm in the airplane looking down kind of way. Right. And you can see this big picture or whatever, you know, and, and because of that, history where we think about the big story really should not in my view be just the only story we tell because we leave out so much history is often thought to be written by the winners right because the losers aren't there to tell you what happened and so but what if we had a world where there was an ecosystem of stories and what i mean by that is like when you think of a biological system like you know like a a biosphere you need all these different things in it in order to make life happen you need trees need grass grass needs rocks or earth right animals need plants What if we thought about history like that, like an ecosystem where all of our human stories are connected to each other? If we had um, a sense of history as an amalgam of all these human stories, all these different kinds of life stories coming together in a big stream of things, we would have a lot more diversity in terms of what stories there are, in terms of who gets to tell them, in terms of how they are told, because there's more than one way to tell your life story, isn't there? I mean, you don't have to do the same thing all the time. And that would bring a lot more of real diversity, real interesting diversity to our understanding of how things work so that history is not just told by the winners it's told by everybody because everybody has a story and everybody is part of larger social events and why shouldn't we understand them through the lens of all these different experiences and stories right you can tell that if you're if you're in a society and you don't have um, access to certain kinds of things, you don't have access to the kind of power that elites have. Elites can tell a story about you that's not right, and it's not accurate, and it doesn't express your life, and it doesn't express what's important to you. So why can't we have stories that proceed from what people want to do with them? right and say what they think is important so that's that's sort of the um a different way to understand how life stories can help us understand larger issues i can't even imagine what would happen if we gave as much attention to the voices um that stories are told about as the people who tell those stories how different things might look and how we might invest our energy and our resources into different places and different peoples Yeah, I can't either. And I want to imagine it. I want a world like that. 
I want a world where everybody gets to say things and we and we proceed from that because I think yeah I think I think our planet would be different I think our environment would be different mm -hmm. I think we would be less inclined to exploit others if we gave dignity to everyone's stories and I, th I think that um, I am not the only person who has said that and the, and the idea that stories matter and that they make who we are um, you know is an old one and it's it's something that um, you know we need to keep reminding ourselves of we need to keep working for that and remembering that that's really important stories have power especially stories about our lives as we end this interview if you could just share with us some of the ways as participants of this class, we could begin sharing our story or writing our story. If we don't see ourselves as writers, we don't see ourselves in that light. What can we see in our lives that we are doing that we might be able to start begin telling our story? Wow. It's okay. So I do an exercise when I'm teaching um, about autobiography where I ask students just write your life story a couple of pages, but I don't tell them how to do it. And I say to them, you know, you could take your name out and then you can write your story, right? Because it can feel a little safer for you to do that, right? Ask yourself these questions like, are there three things I can say about who I was, who I am, and who I want to be? Can I just share those? And if you do that, I think you are starting on the journey of telling your own story and and a story that other people are going to want to read because if there's one thing i know is that people all over the world want to read these stories they really do they and they want to hear about them and they want to share them and they even want to sometimes sing them and i think it's because we are interested in the lives of others but others can help us move forward too that's certainly why I read. And I think, is there a better reason to write something? No, I don't think there is. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to include an activity that Julie is referencing. So mm -hmm. I would encourage people, if they feel comfortable, to participate in that activity. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think the thing that's key is that you share what you want to share. You, nobody needs to tell you what to do. There's no right or wrong. And I think that's also important too. It doesn't have to all be your pain or something. It can be like well, other stuff that you think is important to tell, right? And you also don't have to tell stories that perhaps you feel you've had to share in the past. This is, this is your decisions around how, what you want to share. That's right. And I think that makes a big difference because when somebody is trying to get you to say something because you need something or, or you're in a situation where someone's trying to take a story away from you or drag it out of you, that is not, that is not life writing. And if there's something you want to tell, then you get to tell it. And if you want to not tell something, why not leave it where it should be? You do what you need to do when you're ready. There's more than one way to be a person. There's more than one life story in the world. And if we put them all together, what kind of world will we have? That's a world I wanna live in. I wanna thank you so much for coming. Julie, I really appreciate this, taking your time out of your marking and all the things that you have to do in your life. And thank you, thank you very much. It's an honor and it's an honor to get to speak with you, Lisa. It's an honor to be part of Humanities 101. And for all of you out there, I hope I see your stories someday, however you decide to share them. Thank you, Julie. There's lots to unpack from what you've shared with us.
Julie introduced an activity of writing a 500 word autobiography. We have posted directions for this activity online and have included them in the kits. A fellow listener has already shared their response to this activity. Take it away, Jenny. Story of a girl who grew from a crack in the sidewalk. If you were to open a box of mine from the past, it would be full of broken toys and worn out clothes. The wish book catalog where I circled the rock tumbler every year for five years and getting socks under the tree instead. The clothes that weren't stylish, but cheap from secondhand stores, which seemed not to fit quite right, and I shrunk in them when I wanted to feel invisible. It would be filled with a fake cabbage patch doll. When I brought it proudly to school, I had girls snatch it away from me on the playground and rip down her underwear to expose her bare bottom with no signature on it. Both me and the doll ended up in the mud as the girls pushed me in it. I cleaned her up the best I could, and I apologized to her. I understood her. We would never belong. We would never belong to people who wore their acid-washed jean jackets proudly, had real cabbage patch kids, and didn't have haircuts from kitchen tables. If you were to open a box of mine from the past, it would be full of diets and exercise and trying to prove my worth. It'd be full of teen magazines that gave the next solution to a weight or skin problem. It would contain alcohol that I would down during bush parties where I finally felt that I fit in, where people would give me a mixture of whatever they smuggled from their house, and they would hit my arm and say, you're not so bad. And as the weight dropped off me, and the more I went into a dark field to drink by a fire, the more people accepted me. It wasn't me. In the same box was a stargazing magazine that my neighbors described for me and National Geographic. But that did not make you part of something at school. Brown cows and peach schnapps made you part of something at school. But as I grew skinny and fit into size eight Wrangler jeans, I felt accepted by everyone, but betrayed by myself. If you were to open a box of mine from the past, It'd be full of used pots and faded sheets and the fear of leaving home and the first night of loneliness in a basement suite where neighbors were way too close to me and I couldn't see the sky. If you were to open a box of mine from the past, you would suddenly be surprised by all the good things. Poetry readings, lectures, classical music, friends, laughter. You would see learning, dialogue, and growth. Most of all, you would see confidence. If I could talk to my former self, I would say, shove all those boxes, all those boxes that don't mean anything now. The problem is that at the time, they meant everything. When your life experiences are small, all those things seem like they're definite and all that you have. They define you, but they are not you. I'm glad that I'm not in a box now. I'm proud to teach my kids that things shouldn't be in a box. I have given them so many experiences, science, art, music, literature, but more importantly, I taught them to be open and kind, helpful and caring, and to be accepting of others. They are not growing from a crack in the sidewalk. They are firmly planted in a large pot where there's plenty of room to bloom. 
And the more that they blossom, the more they push the ugly out. The dolls in the mud, the drinking in the bush, the loneliness of being different. They won't be contained in a box and they will let others to be free out of theirs. As for the other boxes I have, they can sit untouched, collecting dust in the attic. Thank you, Jenny, for sharing that with us. To read more listener stories, check out the website, hum101onair.ca. Next, we speak to Nisha Patel. Nisha is an award-winning Indo-Canadian poet, artist, and public speaker in the city. She is the current poet laureate for the city of Edmonton. Nisha speaks to us about many things, including not only the power of sharing your own story, but the importance of doing so at your own pace and being careful about not re-traumatizing yourself as you take on heavy topics and experiences. Do you mind introducing yourself? My name is Nisha Patel. I'm the City of Edmonton's Poet Laureate, and I'm also the Executive Director of the Edmonton Poetry Festival. Thank you. Um, what is a Poet Laureate? The City of Edmonton's Poet Laureate uh, position was created quite a few years ago, and essentially the Poet Laureate is a poet that's hired to reflect the life of the city through their work. And so a couple times of a year, the Poet Laureate is invited to official city events. We're also invited to speak before council to present work that we've written just for the city and just for those occasions. So it's kind of a role that acts as an ambassador for poetry as well, in which you take part in literary projects throughout the city. The city gives you an honorarium and you're able to move a little bit more freely because as you know, like a lot of artists don't have a lot of steady income. So it's a really important position in order to allow a poet to grow and to really embrace the life of the city through their work. How does being that type of representative for Edmonton impact or dictate the stories that you tell? For me, being a poet laureate means that I write things that are topical to conversations that I've had, to things that I've learned, to things that are going on in the city. And what's ended up happening in some cases is that some of the poet laureates have actually been fairly critical of things going on in the city. And I think even criticism comes from a place of love because we want to live in a city that affects all people positively, right? That empowers people. And so even those types of conversations that we try to start are beginnings, right? They're not necessarily final verdicts or anything like that. And so for me, the role has really been about bringing light to issues, uh, maybe ones that don't get as much traction or time uh, as, as I think they should. I think it's really important. I didn't know that was a role Edmonton had. Um, do you have a specific type of story or I guess area of focus that you choose to create your art around or your poetry? I think a lot of the themes I've had have varied. And so one of the recent projects I had with the city was writing for the grand opening of the Milner Library. And for that poem, for instance, I really tried to touch on the joy of reading and the joy of discovery. And that's something that I really grew up with as a kid who liked books more than people. And so it was really easy for me and hard at the same time to capture those feelings. And other poems that I've written have really focused on the topic of justice and equity, especially for racialized people, you know, especially for people who experience violence or experience oppression or racism. And so 
of course, like I think my experience growing up and my experience now in society really plays into it. And honestly, it's it's a total toss up depending on the day of the week or the time of the year, what I'm going to write about and what's the most pressing. Really, when I go to write a poem, the themes that come out are the things that are really weighing most heavily on my mind. So what does your writing process look like? The writing process is very interesting for me because when I started out, five or six years ago as a poet, uh, I really wrote from very emotional places, right? I would access these like deep, deep states of emotion, either, you know, despair or guilt or fear or rage. And I would try to write from those scenarios. And I ended up being, I think, very unsafe in my writing. I was hurtful to myself. It was traumatic sometimes to talk about some of the experiences I was mentioning. I was really mining my own experiences for for things to write about, of which I had many, but at the same time, I wasn't keeping myself safe. And my writing practice now has evolved, right? And my understanding of myself has evolved and how to take care of myself and take care of my audience. So now the practice that I that I kind of go through And I've tried to learn from other teachers. I've tried to take lots of workshops. I've tried to learn about craft and word choice and sentence structure and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, my writing process is very much uh, a series of choices about intuition and about feeling. And so when I go to write a poem, I let the words seep in from, again, those emotional states, but now I'm taking care of myself, right? I'm making sure I'm not, you know, re-traumatizing myself when I'm visiting such heavy topics. And I'm writing from a place of instinct, right? What sounds good to me? What feels good on the page, you know? And then later on, I'll go back and in the editing, I'll think about things like structure and I'll think about sentence choice and I'll think about what it looks like on the page. But when I'm writing these things in the first place, These aren't the biggest concerns for me, right? It's what does a poem sound like and how good can I make it sound? How well can I get these ideas across verbally? Uh, For me, that's been, it's been really interesting as I try to transition to a visual practice as well as a, a spoken word practice, because it's easy to perform a poem out loud for someone like me who performs you know, dozens of times a year, but it's harder for me to make sure it looks great on the page or to let my work go into the world that's not going to hear it necessarily. You mentioned how your writing process before was slightly traumatic because you would make yourself almost relive these situations or these stories you're wanting to share. So do you think in being nicer to yourself and changing your writing process now to the one you currently have, like, have you found a way of healing without having to relive. I think it's really important to recognize that art in all its forms has like an incredible healing potential and that art therapy exists as a school of thought and as like an educational tool because it's based on this idea that art is very healing. But I think all communities that come from cultural traditions know this as well, right? And for me as a creator of art, it was important not to just understand that art in itself could offer me healing, either other people's art or my own, but that the process of creating art can also be a healing one if I take care of myself. And so what I, what ended up happening was that I would want to talk about traumatic things that happened. And I thought that I was being really brave, you know? I thought that if I talked about these things, someone else would really feel and identify with what I was saying. But what was happening is that as I was writing these things, I was really, I was 
you know, I was reliving these things, as you had mentioned, in ways that were really hard to get out of, right? So I was stuck in this cycle of thinking about trauma without accessing any healing tools around it. And so I had to reach this point where I told myself that unless I was able to access that kind of end state of healing, this idea that I had overcome something and that I was sharing a, a struggle that I had overcome that I could share an end game about, I wasn't allowed to talk about these traumatic things. And that rule, setting myself up for that kind of success, really changed my outlook. In order to write about trauma, you have to have like, you know, the resources both in your personal life, but also the external resources. And all of that takes tons of tons of time, often takes money uh, that I have the privilege of having, and it takes effort. And unless you're willing to do kind of that healing work around talking about trauma, talking about trauma is not going to help you. It's only going to make it harder for you. Um, when did you get into poetry? And then how did you make the shift from spoken word into adding the visual piece? Yeah, so I started writing poetry in kind of a really strange place in my life in 2014. So I was living in a very isolated community at the time, uh, up by high level Alberta in Treaty 8 territory. And I found that I had a lot of hours to myself uh, during this summer that I was away from home. And during that time to face kind of the isolation and the loneliness, I turned to both visual art and poetry to comfort me. So I ended up starting my writing journey uh, six years ago. And then afterwards, when I returned home, I started really trying to find community around it. So I accessed open mics, I started attending poetic events, um, I started making friends in the poetry community. And that really allowed me to bring out who I wanted to be as a poet. And so as soon as I was part of community, people started giving me opportunities to perform. And I really started making the shift towards kind of this visual element. One, when I started reviewing the manuscript for my first book, and that's when I had to really start paying attention to what poems look like. The change really started happening when I realized that because I wasn't outperforming in audience spaces, I wanted to be able to give people poetry that I didn't have to be present for. And so I've really started to focus on like, what is another medium for communication, right? And visual poetry is just another avenue to talk about something, right? To start a conversation. So that's really what I'm trying to do here. Perfect. Thank you so much for allowing me to interview you, Nisha. So my book comes out April 2021 with New West Press. It's called Coconut. I'm very excited about this book. I just want people to feel like this is a book that they can get comfort from or that they identify with. And especially like young racialized girls, I want them to understand that their experiences matter, that their experiences of violence or, you know, familial strife and stuff like that, like that I see them and that I hear them and that I'm trying to write things for them so that they one day will write their own story as well. You can check out more of my poetry or just follow along with my with my cooking adventures and my selfies all on my Instagram at another Nisha. Thank you, Nisha, for speaking to us so honestly and reminding us that attention to personal safety and well-being is an important part of a sustainable autobiographical practice. For those of you who know us, you know that this is very important to how we do HUM. HUM does not require the exchange of story for access. Too often people have to share painful stories to participate or to get things they need. This flattens people's holistic experiences and risks re-traumatizing the storyteller. 
This is not the story sharing we have been or are speaking about on HUM. Your story is your story, and we respect your decisions in choosing what, when, and how you would like to tell which parts of your story. Each of us have many different moments of life that can be woven into tales. We are complex people and connections happen through heartache and laughter and all the places in between. Stories can be and should be as unique as those that tell them. If I have learned one thing thus far, there is not one kind of story to tell and not one way to tell it. They are living, breathing things that heal through connection and truth that is felt in the guts where both laughter and sobbing are born. So just a reminder that you are listening to HUM 101 and we are Kendra Cowley and Lisa Prince. And you can tune into the show every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. here on CJSR 88.5 FM. If you have any questions or have a story you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. And finally, we spoke with Darren Hagen. In 2017, Darren was named one of Alberta's 25 most influential artists over the last 25 years. In 2019, Darren was a writer-in-residence at both the U of A and the Edmonton Public Library. Darren wrote his first play, The Edmonton Queen, Not a Riverboat Story, in 1996, and has been writing and performing drag and otherwise theater in the city ever since. Morningstar spoke to Darren about queerness, drag, and how a deep dive into history can reveal how stories of gender play and queerness have always existed, even when they've been erased in dominant historical narratives. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Darren Hagen, and I'm a playwright and a performer in Edmonton, and I have a a passion for queer history. Um, can you define queer? No, no one can. <laughs> I would, I would, I would love to humor you and, and give it a good old college try, but it'll be obsolete by December when this is actually airing. So, <laughs> I know what it means to me. What does queer mean to you? Well, I used to identify myself as specifically gay, uh, but queer is more. Gay is so much about who you sleep with. Queer is about what you believe politically. That's how I define it. So, but there are as many definitions for queer as there are queer people. So I would hesitate to put one out there as being the definitive answer. That makes a lot of sense. So can you talk about how you use drag as a storytelling and what to you drag is? Um, well, for me, I, I prefer to call myself a drag artiste because I don't know why, because I'm pretentious and it makes me sound different. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, drag is, it's, oh, this, that's, see that question right now, we can take up the whole half hour with my answer to that question. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I was. It's who I became. It's how I became who I am. It's, it's a persona, but it's also a character. It's the other half of me, but it's not really me. It's all of those things and none of those things. It's kind of like the word queer. It's kind of impossible to, to sort of nail down. But I do know that I, I started uh, experiencing um, um, uh, other versions of gender when I was about, well, when I was a kid. I was always a feminine boy. And when I moved to Edmonton, I saw my first drag show on Halloween of 1982. And my life changed forever. By January 14th, 1983, I was in my first drag show. 
and became his flashback, became Entertainer of the Year, became Entertainer of the Decade, was second in line to the throne, to the Empress of Edmonton. And then once the bar system sort of fell apart and flashback closed, and I sort of launched into my own career as a composer, uh, because I'm also a musician. And uh, so I was doing music for theater and, and trying to get into the theater scene that way. And I kept watching shows and going, oh, I wish I could be on stage. I wish I could be on stage and drag. And then I went, why can't I be on stage and drag? Just because I'm no longer in the queer world doesn't mean I can't. And so in 1990, I don't know, well, it was 1987 when we took our very first drag show to the Edmonton Fringe, 1987. And I took eight drag queens or an eight-person drag show to the Fringe in Edmonton, and it was the first time that it had ever happened. Yeah, it was kind of a hit. And then I got into theater doing music, tried to leave drag behind because um, I you know, was facing a lot of transphobia and dragphobia and homophobia. And I thought the less I draw attention to myself, the better, although that's not really me. I should have known that it wouldn't work. <laughs> it was when I married the drag to the theater career that things went and totally took off for me personally. It was when I was honest about who I was and put it front and center, not just as an identifier of who and what I am, but as a source of inspiration for the stories that I wanted to tell. As a drag artiste. Thank you. You're welcome. So you use that as a way to set tell your your personal story. Is that what you're saying? Partially. I think I think every artist we need to dig into ourselves, into our own personas and our, into our own lives and our own emotions to be able to sort of communicate artistically effectively. Uh, so it's not just a, a way for me to access that stuff, but it also, not just my story, but it also became a way to look at the world around me. For instance, every time I found, oh, look, there's this piece of interesting history. Oh, look, this guy was a cross-dresser. Let's look into that. So for instance, I'm obsessed with Russian history, right? With the Romanovs and Rasputin and Nicholas and Alexandra and have been since I was a kid. When I did a deeper dive, there was always this veiled reference to Felix Yusupov, who hosted the party in the basement where Rasputin was murdered, that he had been a bisexual cross-dresser. And then the straight white historians would go, but let's not talk about that. I want to talk about that. So you dig into that and realize that the entire Rasputin uh, assassination was part of a romantic gay love triangle by Felix Yusupov and his boyfriend, the Grand Duke Dmitri, who was in line to the throne because they knew that the boy was going to die from hemophilia and it was a, a matrilineal succession and all the, though there was no matrilineal succession. Anyway, it's a long story. I won't get into the Russian history of it. But you start realizing that my job is to queer history to go through it and not just find the queer story that might not have been told, but there's drag stories that didn't get told. Drag is not this RuPaul invention. Drag has been around since the dawn of time. Cross-dressing, you know, dressing across gender has been around since the dawn of time for survival, for entertainment, for political purposes, for, 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 for reasons of protest. And so for me, every time I look at history, I look for an angle that's queer. I look for an angle that might be trans or drag or where there's cross-dressing involved. And you'd be surprised how often it's there. Someone needs to come along and tell those stories. So for me, drag isn't just a, a way of exploring my own life. It's also a way of exploring the history that I am just happened to be living within, right? So for instance, I did a play uh, in 2019 um, about Mr. Ted North, all lowercase letters. He was the self-proclaimed Empress of Canada. He was a drag queen who actually worked with Pierre Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, to uh, move forward the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1969. A drag queen did that. In 1957, he was standing on the steps of the Vancouver uh, public uh, Vancouver uh, uh, courthouse with a sign saying, I'm a human being. Like, drag is a part of Canadian history, not just a part of queer history. It's a part of history. And so for me, the more of those stories I find, the more fascinated I get by drag. Specifically talking about the queer history of Edmonton, 
Why do you think yeah. it's important for it to be shared through these like works of art and these other types of storytelling? And what are we going to lose if it's not? Um, if Well, we already know what we would lose if it's not because we've already lived through that, which was decades of not having queer stories front and center, which means everything in Edmonton gets named after straight white guys that killed a whole bunch of indigenous people. So Preach. that's... That's what happens if we don't have queer stories at the front of the of the of the line. Not the, not at the front of the line. Queer stories, marginalized stories, have to come to the front of the line. I just happen to be queer, so that's my my expertise and my passion, and and the one I feel like I have the, the one I feel like I have the most not just the most invested in personally, but the one I have the right to explore most effectively. So every city, the history of every city is made up by the people that live in it. And if 10% of the population doesn't have a story in that city, then we're not getting the whole picture. And that's been the problem with world history up to this point is we're not getting the whole story. So you mentioned earlier the like the queer bar scene in Edmonton. How has that changed over the years? Because now we only have one gay bar, correct? If that, like will evolution survive the pandemic? You know, until you can walk into a straight bar and to be able to sort of um, approach someone romantically without a fear of being beat up, then no, um, we, we will always have a need for a gay bar. And it's not just to be able to go out and pick people up or to be able to connect romantically. It's also about, you know, being able to watch queer performance together with queer people in a queer space. That's important, a place where you feel safe enough to just be queer. Um, that's still something that I think, especially in Alberta, we still need. So I think that there is still a need for a gay bar. The fact that evolution might be the only one standing right now is, I think, just a coincidence of where we are in this world, in this time, in this moment. Um, gay bars still exist, but they are closing down all over the place right now. They're the, one of the victims of the pandemic, which is a, a really sad thing because it's a lot of livelihoods and a lot of history that's represented there. A lot of stories to be told. A lot of stories to be told. Oh my God, so many stories here. I'll tell you, when I walked into Flashback when I was 18 years old, it was a transformative moment in my life. Seeing my first drag show, that was a transformative moment in my life. I'm still reeling from the after effects of those tiny little moments where all the synapses connect and you see something in front of you that you've never even had the balls to imagine before. And there it is right in front of you and your entire existence changes forever. You're altered irrevocably. So that's the experience that I think every queer person needs is to be able to walk into a space and go, I belong here. Because up until I walked into a gay bar, that was, had never happened in my life. Goosebumps. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I, got little, sorry, I got a little emotional talking about that. I still do, believe it or not. I'm, I, I still am surprised, though, at how uh, I'll be in the middle of a sentence or a story from 30 years ago, and it's suddenly these, these waves wash over me. And I think that's why it's so important to keep creating queer art and to keep telling stories is because if, if it can still do that to me 30 years, 40 years after the fact, that means there's power in those moments. And, and we as a queer people have never been allowed access to power. So I think it's important that we find that personal power within ourselves to be able to move forward. It's hard to watch what's going on now and to see a lot of people of my generation getting blamed for not having done it enough when in fact the landscape was so totally different that we couldn't have done what, what was expected of us. We're lucky that we achieved anything at all. And when you think of any rights that I have are built on the back of Ted North, who stood on the steps of the Vancouver courthouse with a sign in 1957 before I was ever even born, he was fighting for my human rights. 
when I didn't even know I needed them yet before I even knew I was queer. Like it just, it is, we need to learn. This is another reason why we need to learn the stories that came before us because they influence everything that came after it. Right. Everything that we do, everything that we've achieved is built on the backs of the people that came before us. You do a walking history tour of Edmonton, correct? No, or you have in the past? It was a queer history bus tour. We're actually oh. on a walking tour but it was a queer history bus tour that we did for, for years with the uh, university and the Institute of Studies for Sexual Minorities. And, uh, and, and Michael Fair was my co-host for that for years. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. I never thought of really going on tours of the city I live in, but then I also never thought of the stories that I don't know about the city I live in. Well, and that's a layer that has to be painted onto the layer that we know, that we think of as our city's stories. So thank you for sharing and letting me interview today. Um, it was really great. Thanks for reaching out. I, I, it was a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thanks, Darren. When we're able to meet in person again, Lisa and I will be first in line for one of your tours. To hear more from Darren, check out the HUM website at hum101onair.com. Especially since this is a class on autobiography, let's listen to some of your stories. First, Inderjeet shares a recipe with a story and gets our mouths watering for butter chicken. Hello, good evening, Hum 101. I am Inderjeet Kaur Puli. I am explaining my recipe here. When I was in school, every year there was a food festival organized by senior students. When I was in 10th class, there was a group of five students who got the opportunity to participate in the food festival. We were all very happy and when I reached home, after finding out I was part of the group of five, I asked my mom to tell me a good recipe for our group so that we could win the food competition. At that time, there was no Google or any other secondary sources like cooking books. My mom was very good cook and gave us recipe. She trained all five of us students by giving tips and practical knowledge. The day before the competition, my mom helped collect all the grocery. The whole night I was thinking about preparation and do not know when I slept. Next morning, I took a bath and got ready for school. When I reached school, I met up with the friends and our teacher gave the required material and allotted us space and time to get cooking. We worked together to take all grocery stuff and put it on the table in an organized way. Our dish was butter chicken and boiled rice. Two friends started cutting onions, garlic, ginger and fenugreek leaves. The other two friends got the chicken prepared and marinated in curd, garlic, green chilies and ginger. I was busy making paste of onion, garlic, ginger. After one hour, I cooked the paste in oil and add all the spices like salt, black pepper, dry coriander seeds and mix well in 20 minutes. My paste was ready and my friends added the marinated chicken. We stirred the chicken pieces, then we added half liter water and put it on heat for another 20 minutes. In the meantime, our boiled rice were ready. When we removed the lid to see the chicken was ready and cooked properly. 
lastly we added milk and dry fenugreek leaves in it and close the lid for another 5 minutes on low heat after the 5 minutes our chicken and rice were ready for the public in 1 hour our whole dish was finished in the evening we excitedly waiting for our results we were announced the winner we were all very happy and hugged each other after that everybody wanted the recipe from us thank you thanks indijit we have another recipe to share with you from johnny you will hear jay one of our volunteers reading it most national foods tend to be wrapped in more mystery than truth and alpanda hamon remember the j is an h sound hamon is no exception It is something that is very special for Venezuelans and every Christmas part of the dinner table. The origin story I remember being told is very romantic. It explains how in Caracas there was a competition with all the bakers in the city, and the baker that won created the pan de jamón uh, to show the multicultural and culinary unity of the Venezuelan people. The olives represented Italians, the raisins, the Afro-indigenous, the ham, Spanish, and the bread, the Portuguese. Diversity is what makes Venezuelan food so special and delicious and is why I wanted to share it with all of you. The dough. 1 cup whole milk. 1/4 cup plus 2 tablespoons of granulated sugar. 1 package of instant yeast. 1 pound salted butter. 1/2 a teaspoon of salt. 7 eggs and then 4 and 1/2 cups of flour followed by an additional 3 and 1/3 cups of flour. part b filling 1 pound ham thinly sliced 2 cups of raisins rehydrated and drained 1 jar of pimento stuffed green olives instructions make the bread dough i'm sure the pandemic has taught everyone to make bread at this point and if you haven't then youtube is your best friend a million ways and none is wrong my grandma taught me to make a sponge first which is when you mix your wet ingredients with half of the flour as mentioned earlier let that feed the yeast before kneading in the rest to proof but we all learn together differently so do your own thing and meet me on the other side venezuelans love sayings and one of my favorites is all roads lead to rome now the hard part is done i hope you have some music playing as you roll out the dough i recommend oscar de leon a true venezuelan sazon this recipe should yield you two loaves so cut it in half and roll it out 15 to 20 inches about the size of a sheet pan then making a cinnamon like roll you spread a layer of butter put a layer of ham sprinkle raisins and then on the edge closest to you put a roll of olives roll the pan de jamón with confidence be gentle but roll tightly This takes practice so don't worry if it's too thin in spots or loose in others it will be tasty regardless i promise pinch the seam and tuck the ends under and place on parchment paper or greased aluminum foil make a few slits on the top like french bread and let it rise for 45 minutes if you don't do this it could be raw in the middle meanwhile clean up and preheat the oven at 350 degrees fahrenheit Use a beaten yolk or a papillon and water and brush the top of the bread then bake for 40 minutes or until a knife comes out clean when you poke the middle. Now, I did some investigation 
And as with all things, I found other myths about how this bread was made. I found a story about a drunken Italian guy who had an epiphany of making a giant cachico, Venezuelan ham croissant. Other people say that this was made in the homes of people during pre-colonial era, and the great liberator, Simon Bolivier, enjoyed pan de jamon on his travels through La Grande Colombia. Sadly, the truth is a lot more humble and human. During the early 1900s, there was an Italian bakery in Caracas called Romalio that wanted to leave nothing to waste, and so they would pick clean the ham bones, and all of these small leftovers would be rolled into leftover bread dough, and thus the literal translation of pan de jamon, bread with ham, became so popular that other bakeries started making it on purpose, and it evolved into pan de jamon. Necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, and I treasure this dish and its mythos. I hope you try this recipe and enjoy it too. Before we go, we have to let you know the plan for the next couple of weeks. Because the next two classes fall on holidays, Christmas and New Year's Day, there will be no hum classes. Instead, next week we will air an episode of the Book Woman podcast, a quote, podcast where three Métis aunties figure out how to publish, edit, and write Indigenous stories, end quote. And the following week will be another amazing local podcast by the name of Keep Moving, an introduction to the relationship between leisure and gentrification in Edmonton. Some of these guests will be familiar to us as they have already shared stories with us this term or are longtime HUM supporters. So make sure to keep tuning in on Friday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. on CJSR. We will be back January 8th with another special takeover show. It's probably a good time to tell you that that will be our last regular class. We are sad to say, but we do want to celebrate. There can't be an end of term for hum without a party. We are thinking of a dance party with loud music and some shaking and singing. So send us your favorite dance tunes and we will make a playlist to celebrate our making it happen in spite of COVID. Send your music pics to hum101 at ualberta.ca or text them to 587-709-5472. And if you don't share songs with us, I promise I will play nothing but boy band hits. Thank you to everyone who made this week's class happen. Thank you always to AG47 for the theme music and Jason Boris for the sound engineering. And thank you for tuning in 